and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 105, recorded on May 12, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. I'm fresh back from Boston and Red Hat Summit, and I want to say happy Mother's Day to you. I know it's an important day, and we have not one, not two, but a bunch of major stories to break down this week. Well, it might be Mother's Day for you, but it isn't for me, so I don't care. What I care much more about is Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8 having been released. Joe, every day for you is Mother's Day. And indeed, it was a big release. I was there at Red Hat Summit, so I, I got like all of the excitement in the room. Because this isn't something that happens all the time. It's, it's been a few, about five years since the last Enterprise version of Red Hat came out. And a lot has changed. The cloud has really become a thing. And Red Hat's trying to position this release as the operating system that's been redesigned for the, quote, hybrid cloud era. (laughs) I must say, reading through this press release from them, it really is buzzword bingo. But you were there on the ground in Boston cutting through some of those buzzwords. So what were the kind of standout features for you? You're right. And there was a lot of buzz stuff to cut through, as always with these big enterprise releases. But there's a couple of key features. They've got AppStream now, which is uh, something we've seen that showed up in Fedora in the, in the most recent releases, where you can subscribe to different versions of the repositories for software. So you can have RHEL 8, but you could ship a very modern version of PHP even many years down the road. That's a major feature. But something else that Red Hat is launching is what they're calling UBI, the Universal Base Image, which is really truly an Alpine competitor. Now, if you want to build a containerized environment, you can base it on this UBI, which is a real, true RHEL environment. And I got clarification specifically on this point. It's it's not repackaged CentOS or Fedora. It is true Red Hat Enterprise in this base image. And if you run it on a RHEL stack, they'll completely support it. But you could run it on any container environment. And then you combine that with the new release of OpenShift 4, which is all about Kubernetes and building your own serverless environment. They're trying to answer the on-premises, the cloud environment, the Kubernetes workflow, and the container workflow all in one release of RHEL. And legitimately... um, They got there. Like, it it wouldn't be that odd for an enterprise software company to try to convince everyone to just keep doing it the way they've always done things, to keep things the same, stable. Really, Joe, the main message they wanted us to take away is they've modernized RHEL to answer a lot of modern workflows for whatever particular workflow that might be. And it seems like, from my estimation, they've pulled it off. And to what extent could you feel the hand of Big Blue in the room then? To a large degree, it was pretty much not present. However, you could feel it in the focusing of the message around hybrid cloud. Both Red Hat and IBM really want you to strongly buy into the idea that the next generation of cloud workloads is just on the horizon. Uh, The way that Ginny, the, the CEO of IBM, described it as was chapter two of cloud workloads is just about to begin. And these are the real hard jobs. This was during one of the keynotes uh, up on stage. And she says, one of the real hard jobs that's about to come is the things that weren't easy to move to the cloud, where you'll need to have something that's a bit on-premises and something that's across multiple different cloud providers. And that's the workload that they're going to try to address. And she thinks, and I would imagine IBM and Red Hat are all in agreement along these lines. They're all in alignment here. She thinks that this is probably 80% of the workload left to go. 
And uh, in that messaging and in communicating that strategy, you could really kind of feel the hand of IBM. But outside of that, when it came to like architecture decisions, technology decisions, the way they package all of this up, that felt like classic independent Red Hat. Are you trying to tell me then we're talking about cloud 2.0 then? Is that the name that's going to be given to hybrid cloud? <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if they came up with something like that. If they call it that, I think you should get credit. But they really do want you to believe the story that the, uh, the cloud is yet to even really kind of kick off yet. And that they're not late, they're getting in on the good part of it. That's the message that they really were trying to drive home. And you know, that's sort of completely detached from these RHEL releases. But it was pretty great to be at a Red Hat Summit when a RHEL is getting released. That doesn't happen every year. If that's really true, and there really is 80% left of the market for them to expand, and that with this hybrid cloud approach, they can get a big chunk of that, then suddenly all those billions that IBM paid for Red Hat looks like chump change, doesn't it? Oh, sure, yeah. They, they really tried to stress that point. They commissioned a study by IDC to uh, really drive this home. And, it, and there was some unbelievable number that uh, it, was, it was just remarkable that 5% of the worldwide economy flows through Red Hat Enterprise Systems. $10 trillion worth of global business revenues in 2019 will flow through a RHEL system. Well, we talk about IBM having bought Red Hat, but there are a lot of formalities to go through first. And this week, a major step was taken. It was approved by the Department of Justice. So it looks very much like that acquisition is going to complete in the second half of this year. Well, a busy week indeed. While I'm in Boston, Google I.O. and Microsoft Build were going on. And there were a few announcements that caught our attention from Microsoft this week. Yeah, one huge one was that they announced Windows Subsystem for Linux 2, which, unlike the first subsystem, actually uses a Linux kernel. So Microsoft are going to ship a Linux kernel as part of Windows. Right, they're building an in-house kernel from the latest LTS branch from kernel.org. So the initial versions of WSL2 will ship with Linux kernel 4.19. Improvements or modifications or changes that they make to that kernel, they are committing right here in their blog post to upstream back up to the main kernel.org developers, and they will have their fully configured version of the kernel available up on GitHub for anybody to take a look at. It's really the addition of a new tiny lightweight VM that uses a Plan 9-based file server and the Linux kernel to create a total Linux environment on Windows where all system calls for the applications are supported, which was the major limitation of WSL before. And along with these changes and the way they're handling files now and the support for Extended 4 means incredible file system performance improvements on Windows as well. Windows 10 with a Linux kernel with Extended 4 file system support from Explorer all shipped and blessed by Microsoft. That's big news. It is big news. And those performance improvements are very important here because that was always the bottleneck. Anything that involved disk I.O. essentially was really slow on the first iteration of the subsystem. But now it's almost like native performance. There's almost no overhead there. And so this has become incredibly attractive to people who need to have Linux but also need to run Windows for various reasons. A lot of things are staying the same, too. I think that's a big goal of Microsoft's here, is you can still run multiple different Windows with different Linux distros in them. 
the VM doesn't take a long time to start up. It's not like a traditional VM where it boots up and it loads a, a fake hardware environment and then it creates some sort of weird remote desktop connection. It's it's much quicker. It boots in about two seconds and it's designed more as like a hyper VM than a real full-fledged VM. But what that gives you is the full Linux kernel, which means you can do things like run 32-bit applications even on a 64-bit Windows environment. You can use a Fuse file system. There's a lot of advantages to having full Linux kernel capabilities, obviously. And you can run multiple versions of them at once, just like you could with WSL1. There's a very interesting presentation from Build that was uh, recorded and is up on YouTube that goes into a lot of the details about this. And one thing that jumped out at me was about that VM even if you're running multiple different distros, there's only one Linux kernel. They all just share the same kernel. And so it means the overall overhead is much lower than using traditional VMs. And because this isn't like some VM they've created from whole cloth, it's what they're using on Windows Server, it's what they're using on Azure, it means Canonical is capable of providing actual official support now for that version of Ubuntu on WSL2 because it's the same version that they provide support on Azure. Uh, Canonical has announced in collaboration with Microsoft, they are certifying Ubuntu on the Windows subsystem for Linux, including Docker containers, Kubernetes, and Snaps. You don't have the bell in this show, but uh, it's almost worth ringing it for that. Snaps on Windows. It's a huge thing for Canonical. That does seem like a really big deal. Uh, it could be a really easy way to get Plex running for home users on Windows 10, but there's all kinds of possibilities for developers and system administrators if you can run some of those same Linux snaps on the subsystem. And why couldn't you? It seems completely possible. It's interesting that Canonical is right here at the very beginning of this saying, we're going to officially support that too. Well, they were there at the beginning of the first subsystem, weren't they? They were the first distro available. That's what it launched with. So it's not a huge surprise to see them continue in that collaboration. But there's one big question that I have about this, right? Why didn't they just do this in the first place? Why did they spend all that money on working out ways to interface with the NT kernel and translate those system calls when they could have just done this in the first place? I just can't help but think they maybe had a meeting where they were trying to solve some of the problems that were caused by that. And someone just probably piped up with, you could just have a Linux kernel in a VM, maybe. That must be it. That's got to be it. In that video you cite earlier, they do up on the screen, they show like all of the issues people have submitted that frankly just come down to differences between the way NT does things and the way Linux does things. And none of them are necessarily better or worse. It's just differences. And applications have expectations. And so I think really they did exactly what you suggest. They must have. They must have sat around and said, how are we going to solve all of these issues the developers are submitting? Because here's what's happening, is we have actual application developers that are lifelong Windows users that now need to create a Linux application, and they want to do some of that development, better or for worse, on the subsystem. How can we give them a complete tool to do that? Well, the real answer there is to give them the full kernel, right? Give them the full Monty. You got it. And so they must have just, as a matter of process of elimination, come down to this. But I think what's fascinating about it is this news in combination with their other big news out of Build that affects a lot of us traditional Linux users. Yeah, you're talking about the Windows terminal, which is an actual proper terminal that behaves like it should with tabs and all of the other good stuff that we're used to on Linux. Now you're going to be able to have that on Windows, and it's open source as well. But that is MIT licensed, as you'd expect, permissive license from Microsoft. 
And I think that may be the answer to the question of why they didn't do the kernel thing before, was because any changes they make, they'll have to GPL. And as much as Microsoft has pivoted, and yes, they do contribute to the kernel, they don't like having GPL stuff within Windows. Yeah, well, that's true. They don't. They seem to try to avoid that. But they're not just open sourcing the new Windows terminal, but also the Windows console, which hosts the command line infrastructure in Windows and provides the traditional like command prompt interface. That's not going away. That's going to run alongside the new fancy terminal that everybody's going to be talking about. The new the new hotness that is GPU accelerated. Because, of course, you need your terminal to be GPU accelerated. <laughs> of course, it needs to use DirectX <laughs> for text rendering. You got to have that so that way you get the best possible emojis. Uh, I, I kid, but they actually have something pretty good looking here. The text flies. It does seem to make a difference in the rendering. So, you know, yeah, give, them, give them that. And the configuration mechanism is pretty neat. You're going to be able to create a multiple profiles for each shell or application or tool you want to use. You can just go right into it. So if you have maybe a a traditional PowerShell prompt that you need to use for some applications and for some things you want to go right to Ubuntu, you can do that. Or maybe you want to just jump right to an SSH connection. You can have different profiles that just bring you right in there. That's a great idea. And there's a lot of other nice-to-have things in here for Windows users that honestly, in a big way, this kind of feels like Microsoft doing a big catch-up because the command.exe prompt has been horrible for years. I spent a week on Windows 10 like two years ago or something like that, and one of the first things I had to do was replace the terminal. You just got to get a new terminal. And Microsoft says they explored extending and enhancing existing projects, but in the end decided they'd have to change them too much and it would be better to do their own open source project. Now, in the summer of 2019, previews will be released on the Microsoft Store for early adopters, but it is all up on GitHub. You can actually go grab the source and build it today. People are doing that and submitting issues, and there's quite a bit of documentation to help you along. I- I'll say this, Joe. Having watched the videos and read through the documentation, as far as commercial platforms go, like you know your Mac OS and Windows platforms, I-, I would bet you after they're done here, they probably have the nicest commercial platform terminal now built in by default. I don't think they're matching what's on most Linux distros and Maybe I'll miss that GPU acceleration. But as far as the commercial platforms go, I think they've got it. I haven't really used the terminal much on other platforms, but I know the one on Windows is just terrible compared to Linux. The Mac one seems pretty limited as well. So I can see why they wanted to have a full-featured one that actually matches some of the features of the ones that you can get on Linux. And I've already seen people pretty excited about this, people who are forced to use Windows for their day job. They're really looking forward to having a proper terminal to use. I agree. I think about all of the listeners. You know, I look at the stats sometimes. We got a fair amount of Windows listeners. And I think about them, like, I think this is going to make their day jobs or their lives a little bit easier. If they choose or have to run Windows, whatever it may be, this makes it better. <laughs> it's bringing more Linux to more people. Well, it comes back to that same debate that surfaced when WSL was first announced. Is this really bringing more people to Linux? Or is it bringing people away from Linux to Windows? And having people not need to dual boot, they can just have it all in Windows. That's what Microsoft wants. Oh, yeah. I won't lie. (laughs) It definitely touched on those buttons for a brief moment when I went, oh, crap, 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 crap. (laughs) But you know, Joe, you just can't stop the slow but ever-consuming progress of that Linux train. Even those simple machines that were just going to be a web browser on a laptop eventually succumb to that Linux monster. 
Yeah, you mentioned Google I.O. earlier, and something that came out of it, it was just kind of a throwaway comment, really, that all new Chromebooks released this year are going to be able to run Linux applications. Not a huge surprise. I mean, that's sort of what you would expect as they introduce new features to the platform hardware that's released after those new features get support for it. It just seems like that would make sense. But it is nice to see that. And it's getting easier than ever. You can just launch now using the application search launcher thing. Just type in terminal, and this will launch a terminal VM that starts up a Debian 9 box in the background. But as we've covered in the past, it's now getting easier and easier to run full-fledged applications. And Google is adding support to the file manager to get access to those Linux files from the file browser. So it's getting pretty integrated now. Oh, yeah. And the one slight surprise is that even the ARM Chromebooks are going to be supported here. And I suppose that's something we should have mentioned with the um, WSL2, that that is also going to be built for ARM64. So ARM isn't being left behind with this. Well, it strikes me as no coincidence that both Microsoft and Google are trying to make it very easy for you to get a full-fledged Linux environment on your mobile system. It seems like they're clearly trying to go after what I call those Sputnik customers, those customers that Dell recognized many years ago now when they launched the first Sputnik laptop aimed at quote-unquote developers with Ubuntu pre-installed. They recognized that developers wanted to use an environment that they were deploying on in production for development. And now you see Microsoft and Google trying to backfill that need on their platforms that were never designed for this. And while it's great to have it, it sort of um, rings hollow to me. It's like um, it's like trying to go back and fix something after the fact, trying to fix the barn door after the cows have already left kind of a thing. I can see why you think that, but because they've got such a dominant market position, I don't think that that is necessarily the case. I, I think that it will actually service that niche and will keep people away from Linux, you know, proper desktop Linux. I suppose that's definitely possible. It still seems in that scenario, worst case, people are still getting some rudimentary Linux knowledge and experience. And that knowledge and experience would be directly applicable if they were to move to a more full-featured real Linux system down the road for whatever reason. Like it, it could encourage them to go in that direction. Whereas in the past, market and general momentum might have been towards Windows or even Mac OS. Now with all these Linux environments, maybe that changes that momentum. Maybe. But you know, something I've been thinking about is Apple in all of this. Where is their developer story? Where's their Linux developer story? It seems to be non-existent to me. I mean, I don't pay close enough attention. Maybe there's some things they do, but you cannot for a second imagine that you'll be able to build and run Linux binaries on a Mac system. And they just seem to be being left behind here because I suppose they don't really care about that market. They care much more about iPhones and services. Yeah, they want to enable you to develop for their own ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> but is that short-sighted of them? I don't know. I guess time will tell. Right now, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah, but you've got to be thinking five years plus ahead, haven't you? And you know that's what Microsoft and Google are doing here by realizing that Linux is the future. Yeah, and they did release Swift for Linux, which kind of seemed to be like an indication that they kind of got that, that all of these mobile apps have to connect back to server-side services, and that's got to be running on somebody's platform. And perhaps they're just perfectly happy letting that be a Wild West, but it seems to me you're right. They would want some kind of control, knowing them. But so far, I got I to gotta say, I, I can't really fault them. 
they're, they seem to be doing all right. <laughs> yeah, but while you're at the top is when you need to be thinking about when you might not be at the top. Yeah, I completely agree. I That's good advice. You ought to write that up and send it over to Tim Cook. Maybe send him just this time code out there, audience. Uh, tweet Tim Tim Cook this time code. <laughs> he, needs, yeah. he needs to hear from Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Android's on top, and they have a big problem with security updates. I mean, that's like the go-to horse that everybody loves to whip, no matter how dead it is, about nobody getting Android updates. Hey, Google's figured out a really, really clever solution. They're just going to sneak them on your phone. Yeah, they're calling it Project Mainline, and this is part of Android Q. And their idea is pretty simple, really. It's just expanding on Project Treble in terms of making it more modular and being able to update those modules via the Play Store and Play services rather than relying on the OEMs to actually deliver the updates that Google puts out there. Well, this is exactly what I expected when Google announced the Google Play API however many years ago. It just seemed like a great backdoor way to push down features to uh, phones that weren't getting updated by OEMs fast enough. Everybody knows the story. There's a huge, long delay between when Google issues a security update and a phone manufacturer like Samsung or LG actually sends that update out to its end users. And it's becoming more and more of an issue as we discover more things faster, and it It's a bad look. So the new feature, Project Mainline, like Joe talked about, is going to send some security updates directly to Android phones through the Play Store. Now, there will be 12 different, quote-unquote, modules Google is capable of updating. It's minor stuff. It's things like GPS stuff, media components, things that the Play API would have access to. But they are expanding upon that as they modularize the Android base. But this, unfortunately, is not going to solve all the problems because there are some updates that do need a full OS upgrade. And so we're back to that old problem. But it is going to help significantly by the sounds of things. Yeah, if they could just solve a few zero days here and there, even just a few a year, it seems like it's a worthwhile effort. And it does does remind us that they have quite a bit of leverage over a phone that has those G apps and those Google Play APIs installed. Quite a bit of leverage, more like complete control. <laughs> Just like attackers could have had, depending on your environment setup, if you were running Alpine Linux Docker images. Now, don't worry, it's not as bad as it sounds, but it was possible. I almost didn't include this because, to me, this is a bit of a non-story. But then I saw enough kind of debate about it and people disagreeing with my viewpoint that I thought we should talk about this. I think you take this a bit more seriously than I do. Yeah, generally. However, this one isn't making me uh, call for red alert. So some Alpine Docker images shipped with root account and no password, depending on the configurations that the end users applied. This is all according to Cisco's Talos Research Division, who discovered the bug, and they tested each version of Alpine they could get their hands on. Vulnerable images of Alpine's Linux Docker containers were available via the official Docker Hub since 2015, But it's been a while since any of those actual affected versions are in production. The vulnerability appears to be the result of a regression introduced in December of 2015. Due to the nature of the issue, systems deployed using the affected versions of Alpine Linux container that utilized PAM or another mechanism like that took advantage of the system shadow file that the user set up themselves after the fact were vulnerable to a null password for the root user. No password. Zero password. Have at it. Right, but that is less of a vulnerability and more of a, I don't know, a default setting 
that can be changed that isn't ideal out of the box. It's not like an actual vulnerability where the user can't just easily just do password and put a password there. Right. I mean, it again, it really isn't like a big deal, and it was really environment-specific. If you have the Shadow Package installed in your Docker container and you run a service as a non-root user, an attacker who then compromised your system via a completely unrelated security vulnerability, so they have to chain multiple vulnerabilities, or a user that had shell access, so you gave them legitimate shell access, could elevate their privileges to root within that container. That's the extent of the vulnerability. And you had to install like the Linux PAM package or the Shadow package yourself after the fact. And it hasn't been an issue for at least a little bit now since we re- as we record this. But doesn't this come down to the misuse of Alpine? Isn't Alpine designed to run microservices rather than a full stack? Yeah. And it's people who are running a full stack but not really knowing what they're doing enough to put a root password in there that is causing this problem. Fair enough. I think it's, to me too, the other thing that's interesting about it is that this came out the week that uh, Red Hat announced the universal base image, which is straight up an Alpine competitor. It's a larger competitor, you know, in terms of file size, but it's very compelling because you could you could run a RHEL container that is um, supported by Red Hat if you run it on their stack or on any system you want, but you'd still get application compatibility with RHEL. And it's pegged to RHEL 8's packages. I mean, that's a pretty competitive base image to come up against Alpine when they have this news. Like, the timing just kind of stinks a little bit. Yeah, but isn't Alpine servicing a different need here? I think so. I think especially when you're talking thousands or many, many thousands of containers, then some of these differences are uh, pretty pronounced. Uh, but I just thought I just thought the timing still was, I don't know, just very convenient <laughs> for Red Hat. Is that some conspiracy bacon you're frying up there? No, I won't go that far. I won't go that far. It's just, you know, the way things work out. I don't think Red Hat would do that, but it, it is yeah. convenient. Well, something that's definitely convenient is the blockchain. You've got to use it for everything, right? And it's going to be a huge success. Yeah, I'm going to distribute podcasts. I'm going to do my accounting on the blockchain, uh, grocery shopping, uh, everything, unless... Unless it's all a bunch of hype, Joe. Maybe it's maybe it's all hype. Well, I do like to end often with a blockchain story. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've generally been positive, but Gartner has poured quite a lot of cold water over the whole thing by saying that 90% of blockchain supply chain initiatives are basically going nowhere. 90% is a pretty striking number. But then again, if so many of them are just hype crap. That doesn't seem unreasonable. And I think it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. They've identified two issues in this report that I can kind of see. Number one, without a vibrant market for commercial blockchain applications, the majority of companies don't really even grok how to evaluate or assess how they could make it useful for them. And they can't really visualize the entire landscape to see what the different options are. The second issue is, a lot of the current offerings are really just solutions that are remixes of conventional open source technologies that people could just use for free. On top of that, it adds a lot of complexity and confusion because then there's a lot of one-off variations between the different implementations, depending on you know what, what version they forked from and all the kind of complexities that you can imagine. And so it makes it harder for companies to really identify the appropriate types of blockchain for the appropriate use cases. And then you look at the numbers. Now, uh, granted, these are from 2017 and 2018, 
But Gardner did a survey of supply chain technology users who thought that maybe they could do some nice technology upgrades, you know, in the market to spend some money. 19% of respondents ranked blockchain as very important technology for their businesses, and only 9% had even bothered investing in it. So less than 20% think it's worth their time, and less than 10% have even spent a dime on it. I think another big problem here is that companies that are big enough to take advantage of blockchain technology are almost too big to move quickly enough to adopt it. If I were to put on my futurist hat here, I'd say something as fundamental as this too is going to take a very, very, very long time to be adopted. Probably longer than SQL databases and Excel spreadsheets and access databases took to be adopted by businesses. Something like this is going to take a lot longer. And um, I think you're going to see a lot of failed attempts. This this survey here that uh, Gardner did, they are unimpressed. I'm unimpressed with the survey, to be honest with you. First of all, 2017, that's quite a while ago. Second of all, they're asking companies to look forward to stuff that they can't even conceptualize what's going to happen to them in the next six months, let's be honest. And I don't think we really have seen the breakthrough use cases yet. We're starting to see some of them, but some areas of business just take decades to change. Look at shipping and banking. Those are areas of business that can take 20 years to adopt new technology. Us humans, man, we're not so good at this. Yeah, but I think the change will come because there are some clear advantages in certain areas for the use of blockchain. And I think these companies will eventually realize that. But I just think it's going to take a bit longer than I had initially thought. Because I don't know, Gartner, you say you're not impressed with this. They're usually pretty spot on with these things. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Gardner has been pretty solid. I think it's just um, these things are pretty hard to map. We'll see. Long term, Joe, um, I'm betting on Dogecoin. I know it's a long shot, but it's going to make a comeback. I think I've still got some of those somewhere. (laughs) But long term, it's all going to be about blockchain and it's all going to be running on Linux. Of course, of course. Uh, You know, we should have, at the top of the show, the most important news this week is there's a new show where you can get to learn more about the crew. Come meet us all over at FridayStream.com. It's a show where our crew from all over the world hangs out and uh, shares stories and gives each other a hard time. It's just a chance to get to know us a little bit better. FridayStream.com. Yeah, streamed live on Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific or released kind of Monday-ish on the RSS feeds. So yeah, check it out. Yeah, it's uh, Friday on a Monday. It's actually, you know, kind of fun. Gets you going. <laughs> but of course, this show comes out Monday mornings. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And one more plug skis. Tuesday, May 14th. That's coming up real soon now. We have a command line threat hunting study group where you'll get tips to discover if your machine has been compromised from the command line. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for time and details. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Bye.